Rachel. I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 249. And y'all, right off the bat, I got a damn sore on my tongue like an ulcer sore. And did you hear how I said ulcer? (laughs) It fucking hurts. I was like, of course, the night we record our main episode, I got a damn sore on my tongue. Now, we're not big soccer fans, you know, football. But, you know, World Cup just happened. Big deal, right? You know how they always have like a parade or whatever after it? Did you see how many people were there? No. It looked like ants scattered everywhere. I was like, my first thought was, where am I going to pee? No way, no hell, no how I'd be up in that crowd. (laughs) There's nothing I love enough to get in a crowd like that. No, I don't do crowds at all. It was bad before COVID, but then after COVID, it's way worse. I know. I was talking about that with a patient. And when I said that, because I have no boundaries, and I said that about needing to pee. And they were like, yeah, but that's also prime chance for like somebody to do something bad and i'm like well Mm -hmm. tell me you live in america without but i said that to them too i was like before covid i was like this but i'm really like this now you know half of them probably went to the bathroom didn't wash their hands ew that you know what that takes some cojones to walk out of a bathroom stall in a a public restroom smile at somebody and walk straight past the sink (laughs) had it happened the last time i was at academy i was like girl wash your hands First of all, use the bathroom. But second of all, we still are in flu and COVID season. Mm-hmm. It's just gross. And then when she left the bathroom, I saw her holding her boyfriend's hand, and I wanted to be like, Ew. don't you do it, boy. Go wash your hands. Oh, gosh. That's really gross. She's probably got an amazing immune system, too, though. Probably because of that. Well, it is the day after Christmas when y'all are listening to this. And I loved all my gifts. <laughs> I better. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I got Colby season tickets. I'm whispering just in case you can hear me. Season tickets to our local college's baseball. And he has no idea what it is. <laughs> he is guessing all kinds of things. Right now, he thinks it's a PlayStation 5. Well, tell him why he even knows about it. Oh, because he saw it on the account. Yeah, well, the Venmo. Yeah, well, and I, of course, had to say... I got your present today. Oh, of course. And this was like oh, well over a month ago. So he has been dying. He's like, <laughs> why did you even tell me? Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Meanwhile, I'm like, I really hope he likes it because we talked about getting him, but we never said for sure. So he really has no idea. Well, all I know is wear sunscreen when y'all go. Ooh, lesson learned that one day. <laughs> y'all had to leave because you were mm-hmm. so red. Top of the fifth. We had to leave because I was like... I'm baking. Like, I (laughs) was start. Like, I... mm -hmm. Thank God for an apple cider vinegar shower. (laughs) But Donna, Tiffany, Colby, and me, we all exchange our gifts on New Year's Eve. So, we hadn't done that yet. And then we'll probably go to bed before midnight. For sure. (laughs) Bet that Donna and Tiffany leave here at 1030. Yeah, probably. It's hard when, like, we eat dinner and then... Sit around, and then it's like, um, God, midnight is taking a long time to get here. Right. I don't do well at forced parties. Like, if you're forcing me to stay up and to hang out, I'm like, oh, I'm ready to go home. Yeah. Because I am a show up late, leave early kind of girl. It's just, it's who I am. No, I get that. I don't mean to be late. I just am. You want to be late. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's less time I have to talk to people. (laughs) Well, you know, there's some people that you like talking to. Uh, Patreoners! Yeah. Thank you so much, Renee R. from Texas. And Candace P. from New Jersey. Closing out the year as our last Patreoners. That means you're getting uh, a year's worth of content. Well, really more because you get all of it. Yeah, all the backlog. You're getting a freaking episode extra a week. If you're wanting an episode shout out and all the bonus good good they're getting, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Man, last night, apparently this is the Carrie show today with a fucking sore tongue. But last night when I came home, like as I'm pulling into the driveway, all of the Christmas lights on the house go out. That's not true. So there's four strands. The two on the end were lit still. The two in the middle, dead. What happened? (sighs) Yes, that's how. <laughs> we kept saying that we were the fucking Griswolds out there trying to fix this. But, oh, my God. Okay, these are brand new outside lights that we got this year. 
like we went to Lowe's, we got the LEDs. We, you know, we're like, okay, this is an investment, whatever. Like these, you know, we ha- it's like a two-year warranty. Like these should last us at least five years, right? Well, I noticed that a couple of the bulbs were out on the first two strands. Like if there's, you know, strand one, two, three, and four, strands one and two had some bulbs out. Now, last night, strands one and four were working, not the two beside each other. <laughs> like that literally makes no electrical sense in my brain because yeah. it's like, like Colby said, like he changed a couple of fuses out, but he's like, it's clearly getting power to that end. What the hell's going on? Everything we looked up, which was no help, was like, it's a bulb out. It's a bulb out. And I'm like, there's no fucking way. These are brand new. Like, how are these out? So we start changing some bulbs and yeah, some of them were blown. You don't know why? Why? Fucking rain got in there. Oh, but they're for outside. Exactly. How in the hell did rain get in them? Then I looked and they have like a 2.2 star rating. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, probably that's why. Like, as Colby was changing the bulbs out, which we unplugged them, like his hands were wet. Dang. Like, what the hell? What do I do? What do we do? Are we take them back? Because you take them back to Lowe's, you're going to be like, uh, it's after Christmas, so uh, we're not taking these back, you know? Well, it has a two-year warranty. If they're going to keep getting rain in them, I don't want them. Oh, I guess I just thought with the warranty, you would get your money back. I don't know. But on the box, with the, like, the company's warranty, like not Lowe's, the company, it said they wanted the original receipt. I'm like, who the fuck has that? Well, if you get stuff emailed, you probably do. At Lowe's, you pick. Email or print, we probably printed. Oh, I can't stand a printed receipt. It took us forever. We had to take so many of them down to check the bulbs, too. Oh, it was so frustrating. We really did look like the freaking Griswolds out there changing the lights. (laughs) That was me last year with my indoor tree. And Colby was on this rinky-dink ladder that we've got. We have a really good one, but he didn't want to get that one out because it was harder to get out. So he used this rinky-dink one. And at one point, you have to, like, lean them against the bushes. The ladder? Yes. Okay. And his dad would have killed him because he was going up that ladder in flippy floppies. Oh, my gosh. I was like, if you slip on these bushes. Mm-hmm. He's like, it's not that far to fall. I was like, you can still break an arm. Uh-huh. Hit your head. Break a leg. Something. Right. I was a bundle of nerves. I bet. Well, before we get into our stories, we got to tell you about a podcast called Creeps and Crimes. Uh, does that sound right up your alley? Yes, it does. I mean, I feel like we're talking about ourselves because they are former college roommates, check, best friends, check, and they do creepy shit and crime shit. Hello. I feel like you're a Morgan and I'm a Taylor. That's the hosts. Morgan does the creeps and Taylor does the crime. So every Thursday after you listen to Sinister Sightings, you can go check out an episode because they really are just like us. So you get a double dose of laughter, creepiness, and crime. They haven't missed a Thursday since October 1st of 2020. They've been plugging along so you know you got a lot to binge. And on the 5th of every month, creepy accounts come out, which are listener stories that are a bonus episode just for a little, you know, a little extra in the month. They cover all the shiz. Conspiracies, murder, unsolved mysteries. So their episodes start out with a little intro of some chats and some laughs where you get to kind of know the girls. And then you're going to get creepy with Morgan, followed by Taylor's true crime segment. They've covered stuff like Tupac's murder. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And let me tell you, they love to cuss too. So you know that's a bonus. So check out Creeps and Crimes Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can follow them on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, all the things, or go to creepsandcrimepodcast.com. And just like their tagline says, if you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you're having a glass, pour that shit up, and let's get creepy. But before we get into my story, we got one more thing to tell y'all about. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're wrapping up the holiday season and you know what? Emotions are still high and sometimes you need just somebody to talk to about it. BetterHelp has therapists that are trained to help you figure out life. You know, coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, everything that life has and will throw in your way. BetterHelp can help you. 
As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Which, for me, that is chef's kiss because first of all you need to do it in the middle of the day while you're at work cool you don't have to take off to go to a doctor's appointment sit in the waiting room wait your turn then have your session drive back to work all you have to do is well you know take off work don't you know you know how whatever your job's rules are do that but flip open your phone have your session close your phone go back to work and i don't know about you but having to search for the right somebody is very like anxiety ridden. Yes, because you know nothing about them. But with BetterHelp, they're licensed, of course, but they're also vetted. And if it's not clicking, like they said, you just try a new one. So learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash APC. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash APC. Again, for 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash APC. All right. For this story, we're taking it just around the river bend to Boonville, Mississippi. Oh, shit. We're talking about Stacy Diane Panel. It's 1985, and Stacy is a freshman at Northeast Mississippi Junior College. In high school, Stacy was so smart. She was fourth in her class of over 100 people. Oh, my gosh. I know. Smart cookie. (laughs) Not me. Well, yes, you were. Not fourth. No. Uh, Do you remember that our class had, like, the first 13 people or something had 4.0s? Ain't no way, ain't no how. I I don't believe that for a second. No. Somebody be doctoring those grades. I know those people. (laughs) There's ain't no way, no how. But they say that Stacy, being as smart as she was, could have gone anywhere to school. But she chose to go to Northeast Mississippi Junior Community College because her daddy was sick. He had brain cancer and Stacy wanted to be close to home so that she could be with her dad because he was really sick. Her plan was to live at home and then just drive to campus. From what I gather, her family lived about 30 minutes away from the campus. However, she got a band scholarship, so her freshman year, she was required to live in the dorms. On October 8th, 1985, Stacy went and played at a softball game, and then from there, she left and had some pizza with some friends, and then on the way home, she was like, hey, hey, let's actually stop over at the boys' dorm room, because she was talking to this guy named Tommy Osborne, and she was like, I want to go see Tommy So y'all just dropped me off over with the boys. She and Tommy hung out for a little bit, and then he drove her home. Well, in the early morning hours, like 2.30 in the morning of October 8th, 1985, so I guess technically she was doing all those shenanigans on the 7th, and now 2.30 a.m., we're talking about the 8th. It's so hard when something goes over to the next day, but you're still up, and it's like, wait, this is the next day, but it's still the same day. Right. So on this day slash night slash a.m. whatevs. Stacy's roommate Amy Wheeler gets back to their dorm room and the door's locked. So their dorm room was suites. You know it had like bedrooms that were attached via a bathroom. Mm-hmm. So because Amy couldn't get in through the door from the outside to their room she went over to their neighbors that they shared the bathroom with and was like, tick, 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 tick. Can you let me in, please? Oh my gosh, you would have been so mad. Right? Well, the neighbor, Stephanie Alexandra, she opens the door. It's like 2.30 in the morning. She's like, what? And she's like, Stacy locked me out. I'm trying to get home. Can I cut through your bathroom? They were kind of assuming that Stacy may have like passed out drunk, you know? Yeah. Which totally did that on my senior trip. I know. Have I yeah, we told, told them that, that story. Okay. Have I told them that sentence? Oh my God. <laughs> So since they assumed she was passed out drunk, Amy was like, let's check on her. So Amy and Stephanie go into the bedroom part that's Stacy's. Now when they get in there, Stacy is just like laid out on her bed. her Like one leg's on the bed, one leg's off the bed. And it was really kind of dark in there, so they couldn't really see her. Again, they thought she was passed out. So Amy was like, well, I'm just going to help her onto the bed. 
when she went to help her on the bed, she noticed that God, this leg's like really heavy and she's not helping. And she's actually kind of cold. Oh, gosh. And that's when she kind of looked around and realized there's blood everywhere. Fuck. So Amy goes out to get help, and she tells a girl named Belinda Posey, like, hey, something's wrong with Stacy. We need help. So Belinda goes to try to find their dorm mother. The dorm mother gets there, and they see that the door is locked, so they get the security guard to come unlock it. And that's really when they get a good picture of the horrific scene. So Stacy was laying on her back on the bed, like I said, with one leg off, one leg on. She was only partially covered with the covers and she was naked from the waist down her panties were pulled down and just on one of her ankles a pillow was placed over her head and there's blood splatter everywhere they could see that there was blood on her head as well so when police get there their first thought is okay there's some sort of sexual assault with this because she's partially nude and just the way she was positioned My first thought also was that, was it someone that she knew because they covered her face? Oh, that's a good observation because I just thought that's like, was to keep her quiet though. But she clearly had injuries to her head. So they would have like had to hit through the pillow or like how would they have hit her and held the pillow? You know what I mean? To keep her quiet. But usually when someone, well, listen to me, pretend like I'm a profiler, but you know, what they taught me on Criminal Minds Mm -hmm. is that um, if you... If somebody knows the victim or feels guilt Mm -hmm. about it, they'll cover their face. Yeah. But then police noticed that, okay, so in the dorm, they were on the first floor. And there was a window next to Stacy's head, like next to her bed. And they noticed that the screen was cut and that there was a piece missing. Oh, shit. But they noticed that the screen was cut, but it was cut from the inside, not the outside. Oh, okay. Because also you have to think the door was locked. So they're like, okay, is it somebody that was in the dorm that came in, sexually assaulted her, and then got out, you know, locked the door and then got out through the window? Yeah. First floor, you know. So they start asking people around the dorm and they realize, you know, it's 1985. These schools aren't really keeping as much track of the goings and the comings in these dorms like they did when we were in college. Yeah. You know, especially boys coming in our dorm. They had to sign in. They had to sign out. They had to do all the things. Yeah. Well, for this dorm, especially in 1985, They didn't have to do that. So the boys could kind of come and go. You know, they never really knew who was in there when. It was kind of a free-for-all. So the police were like, well, shit, this could have been anybody. So you know how I told you that Stacy was in the band? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so primarily she was, um, like, in the color guard and did the rifle thing. Oh, I love that. So cool. Takes so much talent. In her dorm, they found her rifle covered in blood. Oh, gosh. Her rifle was used as the murder weapon. Fuck. So they did the autopsy, and they found that she had multiple blunt force traumas to the head. It, I think it was like at least three. She had no defensive wounds. So they were like, well, was she surprised? Like, what happened? But guess what else? There was no sexual assault. What? So they know now, okay, so she was positioned in a way to make it look like she had been sexually assaulted. So now I'm like, is it a girl who did this? Well, yeah, so they're like, what the fuck? So the police start interviewing everybody on campus to figure out, okay, what happened? What did Stacey do that day? Who did she see? And they found out, you know, of course she had gone to the boys' dorm to see Tommy, and Tommy took her home. So, really, in essence, he was one of the last people to see her alive. And so, the police go pick up Tommy to question him. And they were really looking at him like, this this may be our ticket, you know. But Tommy tells police, I took her back to her dorm, and then I went back to my dorm. And there were witnesses to corroborate him saying, like, no, I, I came back home. And, you know, with the brutality of what Stacy went through, he would have had blood on him. Because, yeah, I mean, he just would have. There was blood splatter feet from her. You know, he would have been covered. So Tommy was like, I didn't do this. And he told the police, look, you can search anything, my dorm room, my car, whatever you want to search. And he took a lie detector test. And he passed the lie detector. And there was nothing in his belongings to link him to this. Nor was there any physical evidence at the crime scene to link him to that. So they were like, okay, looks like Tommy was telling the truth. Check him off. 
Then they found out that Stacy had a high school sweetheart by the name of Ben Cox. Now, again, high school sweetheart, and they were actually engaged. Oh, wow. But when Stacy was like, I'm actually, I'm going to go off to school. Like, I want to kind of spread my wings. I'm 18 years old. I want to see what this college life is like. And she ended things. Now, word on the street is Stacy, being the one that ended things, was ready to spread her wings, and Ben was not. Ben apparently wasn't taking it very well. He kept showing up at her dorm and at the school to see her. He allegedly kept sending and trying to give her the ring back. Oh, my god! And she wouldn't take it because she's like, no, like, I'm trying to live my life. You know, she's meeting new boys. She's, yeah. you know, going to college, doing the damn thing, right? And... Tommy wasn't the only person that Stacy was seeing. Stacy was talking to a couple of people. Again, spreading those wings. Absolutely. So the police were like, okay, is Ben jealous not only that she broke off their engagement, but also that she's seeing a few people? Again, nothing serious, but, you know, like you said, spreading her wings. So police picked Ben up to interview him, and he is really upset about what happened to Stacy. And he's adamant that he didn't do anything. So they're like, okay, cool. Well, what's your alibi? And he's like, well, I was at home and I went to bed early. And it's like, okay, that would so be my alibi. I'm at home and I went to bed early. That's very true. But the police were like, okay, can anybody back that up? And he's like, actually, yes. Because his mom was a nurse at the, like, the local hospital and she worked the 3 to 11 shift. So she got home at 11, went and peeked her head in his bedroom, and he was asleep in his bed. Oh, dang. And they're like, yeah, that's all cool and all, but based on when she was last seen and when they found her at 2.30 a.m., you could have still done this. You know, mom could have come home, saw you in bed, you drove the 30 minutes to the school, killed her, and came back home before anybody was the wiser. And he's like, I didn't do this. So they're like, cool, you want to take a polygraph? And he's like, sure. He was so nervous for that polygraph that he said he like couldn't even get his name out. You know, I mean, he just was like super nervous. Yeah. Also, 1985 polygraphs, you know, we've talked a few times about them, but you know, it's very different. Yeah. So his polygraph was ruled inconclusive. But just like with Tommy, there was no physical evidence to put Ben in that room other than the fact of he just happened to be an ex-boyfriend, there was nothing to connect him to Stacy's murder. So at this point, we're eight, nine months into the investigation, and there's nothing. The police have nothing to go on. Then one day, one of the investigators goes to a police seminar. And at that seminar is an investigator by the name of Steve Rhodes. Steve lives and works in Illinois, and he's a police officer. I think he was a police chief, but he's teaching these seminars on a different type of interrogation. It's called neurolinguistic programming. So basically, it's all the shit that you do when you lie. You know, you do a twitch, you when you're trying to say you didn't do something and you're nodding your head yes kind of thing. Like all the tales. Right. How you say something, you know. All those different cues so that we can know, yeah, they're not telling the truth. So after that investigator goes to this course, he's like, guys, we got to get this guy down here. Like, we need this help. We have literally no leads. Like, we need him to come down here and interview Ben. So they hire him and Steve comes down and they're like, okay, okay, okay. we want you to interview Ben Cox. And he's like, cool, I'll get there. But first, I just want to interview everybody that knew her, get some background information. Like, let me just start from the bottom and work my way to Ben. Right. He has to orient himself first. Right. Especially with the people who found her body and who were her roommates and, you know, all the people that knew her day to day at college. Because mm -hmm. her family knows her, but they don't know what her college life has been like. And it's just, you know, one thing that struck me as so sad is it's only October. She had only been at college, you know, a month, two months. Like, she had not been there that long. Yeah. So Steve starts with her roommate, Amy Wheeler, and he's like, you know, just tell me some stuff about Stacy and like what her day was like, what, you know, just tell me some stuff about her, the day, everything. And of course, he's using all his neuro-linguistic programming 
ideas to really watch her and see what she's saying. She seemed very legit. She wasn't deceiving him at all. He said she was appropriately upset, which whatever the fuck that means, because... Right. I mean, everybody mourns differently, but whatever. Well, and everyone copes differently at this point, too. It's been a wh- like a while now. Right. And it's like, it's trauma. It's not just like, I don't know, I guess all death is trauma in a way, but... You know, it's it was a traumatic death experience. It's like, while my dad's death was traumatic for me, it wasn't like he was murdered. You know, it's that's yeah. to me, that's very different than, you know, him dying peacefully in his hospice bed. Right. You know, well, and even it wasn't an all of a sudden thing. Right. But Steve does ask Amy, like, who would do this to her? And she's like, I don't know. I, I don't know. He moves on to Stephanie Alexander. And he's talking to Stephanie, and he does the same questions. You know, what was her day like? You know, who was she seeing? Who was she talking to? Yada, yada, yada. What happened? Things are going good with the kind of mundane questions. But when Steve starts asking Stephanie about when they found the body, he starts picking up on some discrepancies in her story, some changes in her body language. And he's like, whoa. Yeah. This bitch is hiding something. Yeah. So he goes out, you know, he kind of puts it on hold, goes out to the investigators and is like, you gotta come in here. And they're like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm pretty sure this girl's the one that killed her. And they're like, what? (laughs) It's Ben, right? And he's like, no, she's lying. So he goes back in and he's talking to her and Stephanie eventually says something that he thought was really interesting. She said, when I went back in the room... Oh. And he's like, wait, what? Because previously she had said that she went in the room with Amy, Mm -hmm. that she had come home. You know, she went to bed. She was woken up at 2.30 with Amy banging on the door to get in. And then she went in the room with Amy. And so he started digging a little harder. And he would pick up on this kind of like eye flutter that she would do when she was about to lie. And so what he would do is when she would start to tell a sentence and do that little eye thing, he would say, stop there. You're not going to lie to me. Try again. Mm. And she was like, fuck, how's he know? Yeah. You know, 1985. Nobody knows shit about body language. (laughs) Yeah. And so every time he would stop her, finally she was like, can you read my mind? Oh my God. And he's like, yep. And she's like, then you know I killed her. (gasps) Shit. So... Stephanie ends up confessing. She signs statements confessing. And she does change her story some. But she ended up signing three different confessions. And while she was in jail awaiting trial, she wrote an 11-page letter to a guy by the name of Randy Price. Now, not the clothing company in our town. (laughs) I'm like... Well, it is kind of local. So. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could be, actually. I just thought about the stories from Mississippi. Yeah. Huh. So she and Randy had only been dating for like a week. And she writes him this huge, basically, 11-page confession. And basically, she says that she didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. So apparently, she had some sort of like infection in her ovaries. So it was really painful for her. So she had taken some pain medicine that night. So she says in the letter that she was heavily sedated and that basically she has a mental block about it. At first, she said she couldn't remember it, but then she would have nightmares and that she didn't know what she was doing at the time. She does say that she was doing homework and that she took three codeine tablets at like 9, 10 o'clock. Which is just like to make you sleep. Right. She said that she had fallen asleep when she heard Stacy come home at about 1230. She said that there were some other girls with Stacy and that Stacy was really drunk and the girls were helping her into bed. And basically, they were so loud that Stephanie couldn't go back to sleep. So she was like, you know what? I'm just going to go hang out with Stacy then and just chit chat. I'm like, okay, she was in, if she was one drunk enough that her friends were having to literally help her into bed mm-hmm. before they left her, she was in no condition to have a conversation. But also, flaw in your story, Tommy brought her back to the dorm room, not female friends Mm. well about that though um did tommy walk her back to her dorm or did he just like drop her off true you know what you're not wrong about that he could have just dropped her off the door then somebody helped her up yeah 
But I also never saw like a toxicology report to say if she was drunk or not. Right. Either, so yeah. Who knows? But Stacy and Stephanie talked about the night. They talked about Tommy. And allegedly, Stacy was like, so what do you think about Tommy to Stephanie? And Stephanie was like, I saw two different answers on t- a couple of different sources. One, she said she was like, he's fine. And one, she said she was like, he's okay. And allegedly, now this is coming from Stephanie, allegedly, Stacy got pissed that Stephanie didn't like her boyfriend, Tommy. And in this letter, Stephanie said that Stacy said, you better stay the hell away from him. And they just kind of got in this heated conversation. And allegedly, Stacy called her a bitch and slapped Stephanie. Don't buy it. But she said she did. And then Stephanie says that Stacy was like, I better not see you hanging around him or I'll kill you. Do you hear me? Why would she care? She's seeing like multiple people. Right. She don't give a fuck if this sweet mate who she's known for two months likes her boyfriend or not. But with the slap in the face and kind of the escalating argument that Stephanie picked up the rifle and hit Stacy across the head. After Stephanie hit Stacy in the head the first time and knocked her out, she kind of panicked, hit her a couple more times, and then realized that she was in fact dead. So from there, she's like, what the fuck? Oh my God, what do I do? So she decided to stage the scene. She locked the door, washed her hands, put the pillow over Stacy's face, and then got a steak knife and cut the screen. Mm. Pulled her panties down to make it look like a rape had happened. Wiped off the drill rifle to take away any fingerprints. And then she took a bath and burned the screen and the shirt she'd been wearing in the commode in the bathroom. What? I was like, what? Why was that smell not the first thing investigators noticed? Right. And maybe they did. I don't know. I don't know. But they say that there was like smoke in the bathroom. And so Stephanie sprayed some of Amy's perfume. And then Stephanie just went the fuck back to sleep. Like nothing happened. Wow. So I don't know if maybe they were like, oh, she was smoking in there. I, I don't I don't know. Because I feel like perfume from 1230 to 230 a.m. isn't going to cover up that burning right and that's a different smell than cigarette smoke yeah i don't know i I was like well that's weird but stephanie got charged with stacy's murder now when it was time for her to go to trial stephanie of course changes her story she says that she in fact did not kill stacy and that her confession was coerced because the defense claimed that that neuro-linguistic programming that they used was a form of hypnosis There was nothing to hypnotize her with. Right. He literally just looked at her body language, her everything, and just what she said, what she did. It was not, there was no leading in that way. Yeah. So her attorneys tried to get the confession thrown out because they say she was hypnotized. Now, it was like a a couple of day trial before the trial to see if the, the confession would stay. And they had some experts that testified. And those experts said that Stephanie was more susceptible to hypnotic suggestion. And you know what it reminded me of? You're going to have to help me remember the name of this. I'm pretty sure it was on Netflix. It was a docu-series of that crime where that group of people allegedly killed that old lady. And they lived in that town. And that one police officer like did all those interviews. And that one girl was like, yes, we did it. This is exactly how we did it. It was like the something six. The Beatrice Six. There was this one girl that was kind of the pin that held it together. The linchpin holding this case together against this six. And basically they said that she kind of had a lower IQ and she was so susceptible to their suggestion that they kind of fed this whole confession to her. And they're like, no, she told us like verbatim what happened in this crime you know we can tell about this crime scene and yeah and that just reminded me so much of what they're trying to say with stephanie it's like yeah she may be susceptible to hypnosis but that doesn't mean that she didn't confess and she didn't do this right if you have not watched the beatrice six you really need to because literally the whole time you're gonna be like i don't know the answer and even at the end you're like i don't know the answer <laughs> But the judge did rule that the confession stays. She did go to trial. She said that the letter that she sent to her boyfriend of like one minute, 
that she wrote it because they told her if she confessed, they would help her get out of it by saying it was self-defense. That doesn't even make sense. Right. Stephanie was convicted of manslaughter, and the jury deliberated for just under two hours. Golly. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison. However, she did not serve the full 20 years, and she was released from prison in August of 2001. Oh, wow. This was on a couple of different shows on Investigation Discovery. Um, I was laying in bed one night with my Palazan on, and I was like half asleep listening to it and Colby had just gotten in bed with his phone out and I was like text me Stephanie Alexander and he was like what and I was like just text it to me (laughs) so I could remember to do this case because it was so good I was like must go to sleep but what happened next yeah (laughs) but this bitch is on the case on Paula's on she's on the episode really and she stands by her innocence to this day and she's like i didn't do this they coerced me and when palazon was like well what about the letter she's like i'm not talking about that and she's like but the letter is and she's like we're not talking about the letter paula said but blah blah blah. she said well they told me that if i you know said it whatever so she's like i'm not talking about it okay yeah well shit she was coerced into telling about the letter i guess and you know the thing with Stephanie is she was like 21 when she killed Stacy who was only 18 so you know she was under 50 when she got out because you know they took a year or two and then the trial and all of that you know and then she spent what 10 12 years in prison and then she was out that's wild and I just feel so sorry for Stacy's parents because you know her dad who eventually passed and I never saw if he passed before or after Stacy though but, you know, that was kind of the whole point of her going to that school was to be closer to him. And then she ended up having to live on campus. But yeah, I don't know. It just that just broke my heart. She was 18, exploring college, living her best life. Yeah. And I don't know, Stacy, but I highly doubt they got into that volatile of a fight where Stacy slapped her and called her a bitch. I highly doubt that happened. But even if it did happen, she killed her. Yeah. Even if it did get to that level and she hit her with a rifle over the head one time okay stop go get help yeah. i was self-defense i was fighting her off you know yeah and i don't understand how no one else heard anything if it was like that big of a fight and why did stacy not have any defensive wounds yeah i just i feel like it's a little bit of a slap in the face to the family that she got out of prison so quickly and that it was a manslaughter charge but there was really nothing other than her confession right. that tied her to it because she wiped everything down. You know, she'd gotten rid of her shirt. She had gotten rid of the screen, you know, all of that. So there was really nothing to tie her to it other than her own words. Yeah. But like, how did the shirt just like disappear though? Like she burnt it. Okay. In a toilet though with water. So Yeah, I don't and understand blush that. it? Question mark? Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like, what? I do feel like the right person went to jail for it. Yeah, I yeah, I feel that too. One article I read did say that there was a sex offender kind of in the area that they ruled that person out too. But especially when there was literally no sexual assault to it, that kind of takes that component away from it. But it's interesting though that you were like, is it a woman? Uh-huh. I was thinking if she was positioned a certain way but there was no rape or anything then i thought it would be like someone who she might have been dating Uh like the ex or something be like you're a slut you know and killed her and then wanted to be like see how slutty she is yeah all right well remember last week and i talked about that haunting and i was like what if it was all stemming from Doretta's childhood trauma and stuff? And then I was like, that kind of leads into what I was thinking about doing for the next topic, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm doing it, but it is kind of short, but I'm doing it. And this is how my brain works because I was like, oh, this would be a good one for Christmas. <laughs> so stupid. But because we're all thinking about getting that perfect gift for someone and, you know, DIY is, you know, a way to go. And what if you could create something like a ghost and give it to someone? Do not <laughs> sell marijuana to my husband. Remember that from uh, TikTok? No? No. Okay. <laughs> that's a huge TikTok. And that's the audio. that It says, do not 
sell marijuana to my husband. But everybody like captions it with something different. Like oh. it'll be like, do not cheat on me. And the next line is okay. And it like flashes to them with like a mask on and like in PJs with hair and rollers. And they're like, okay. You know? Yeah. Well, I've, I've got to get off TikTok. What I was going to say is do not get me a ghost. <laughs> Well, we've kind of talked about tulpas before with like Slender Man because it was a creepypasta. But then people are like, if a lot of people believed in it, it could become real. I heard about this thing called the Philip Experiment. And I was like, oh, shit, this is kind of tulpa shit. So if you don't remember what a tulpa is, basically like this is just not the definition of it, but... It's mine. So it's a spirit from a thought form. You believed in something so much, you gave it a life. So the Philip experiment, it took a scientific route to see if this was possible or not. In 1972 in Toronto, the TSPR, the Toronto Society for Cyclical Research, they gathered a test group together and they started on this new endeavor. The head guy was a mathematical uh, geneticist. I mean, super smart. And his name was Dr. A.R.G. Owen. And his co-director dude was a psychologist named Dr. Joel Witten. So Dr. Owen and his wife, Iris, they were really intrigued by all the poltergeist activity that they had read about. But they really weren't sure it was paranormal. And you have to think they're coming from like scientific kind of thinking here. And they were like, you know what? We believe in the supernatural, but we also believe in like a human factor to it. And so they believed that that poltergeist activity was created by people who unlocked capabilities in their mind that they didn't know they had. Which is kind of what we talk about with like Doretta with her childhood trauma and all of that. And if they moved into a house with bad energy or anything that triggered that and like how her and her husband weren't getting along Mm -hmm. because of having to spend all the money and any of that stress. And then she hadn't coped with that trauma. And then all of her energy could have spurred this activity in the house. Again, with poltergeist, we always are like, if there's a teen girl, it's probably her, you know, all the emotions, all the stuff. So the group was a mix of people, but they made sure no one was like, I'm a medium. I'm, you know, a sensitive to spirit. I, you know, anything in that realm. So it was Dr. Owen's wife, a former chairperson of Mensa. Oh my God. Yeah. An industrial designer, along with his wife, an engineer, an accountant, a bookkeeper, and a sociology student. Lots and lots of logic in that group. Yeah. So the first step in their experiment was to create a spirit that they could contact. But to be a spirit, you know, the person had to have a life. So they gave him one. His name was Philip Ellsford, hence the Philip Experiment. They believed in order to be invested in Philip, they needed to give him a history, something that they could relate to and really think about. So he was born in 1624 in England. He was in the military and actually knighted at 16 years old. Okay. Sword in the stone over here. (laughs) Later, when he was fighting in the English Civil War, he became an ally for Charles II, and he started to actually work as a spy for him. Philip was married to a woman named Dorothea, who he met when he was out on an errand for the king. She was a daughter of a nobleman, and for a while they were happy. But Philip never fell completely in love with Dorothea because as soon as their marriage was official, she became distant and kind of cold. Meanwhile, this is like a whole made-up backstory, right? Yeah. Okay. But then when he met a Romani girl, Margot, he instantly felt what he was missing with Dorothea. And even though he knew it was a mistake, he entered a relationship with Margot. Shame, shame, Philly. (laughs) But Dorothea found out. And because she was petty as fuck, she was like, she's a witch. And so she pointed the finger at Margot. And sadly, Margot was later burned at the stake. Whoa. And this crushed Philip because he couldn't, well, he could, but he didn't want to lose everything and probably 
die beside her, right? And then bring shame upon his name, all the things. Not to mention the king. Right. So he couldn't be like, she's really not. We're just having an affair. All of that. So he just stood by and watched her burn at the stake. But it crushed him to a point that he could not see a reason for living anymore. And he died by suicide in 1654. And he was only 30 years old. Also, they sketched Philip and they had pictures of castles that they believed, you know, he would have lived in and all the things. So they really had to think about him as a historical person. The group would meet and focus on Philip and meditate on him being real. And it would be like a quiet meditation. And then they'd get together and be like, did you feel anything? Did you sense anything? But nothing really worked. So then Dr. Owen shook things up a bit and said, instead of a quiet meditation, let's try to do a seance because that was all the rage right then. He had read up on it and, you know, he was like, maybe this is what we need. We need to be in this thought process. But they didn't want it to be like spooky-ooky. They still wanted to keep everything lighthearted. So they didn't like turn off all the lights and, you know, like, please come forward and blah, 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 blah. You know, they had like colored lights and they like had candles, of course, to create an ambiance, but like multicolored lights. I just picture like Christmas lights, not yours that don't work. Those bastards. (laughs) And they would sing songs from Philip's time period. They spoke to Philip. You know, they tried to keep it fun. And after a little bit, It seemed to work. So it took about four meetings of them doing this seance before they experienced anything. And what happened is they were talking and one person said they felt a vibration on the table. And then they said, was that you, Philip? And they heard a knock. So that was the first experience. And after that, activity kept ramping up. The participants experienced like cold spots or cold breezes. They heard disembodied voices, again, tapping on the table. And this excited them. So they were focused on getting Philip to interact intelligently. Knock once for yes, twice for no. And he did. He would answer their questions. And what was interesting is that like his Questions about his wife were answered with a more like a vigorous response. Whereas when they would ask questions about Margot or alcohol, they would be met with more of a cheerful knock and not like something just like you you could tell the difference in, oh, that bitch, or I don't want to talk about her or, oh, yeah. I mean, I guess ghosts hold a grudge. (laughs) Like I mentioned earlier, the more the group met, the more the activity happened. They had been meeting for almost a year when the table they sat around started to move. It would tilt to the side, it would vibrate, and sometimes it would even move around the room. And all they had on there were their fingertips, just slightly on top. Think of it like light as a feather, stiff as a board kind of thing, or how your fingers rest on the planchette. You know, you're not putting force down, but they are touching. Mm-hmm. Also, the lights would flicker and dim in a responsive manner. And everyone was thrilled with these results. Like, they loved it. And they finally invited some people in. And they recorded their little session. And you can see their fingertips were lightly placed on the table. And it moved. You can see under the table, it's like a card table. So there's not like a sheet over it. And it was actually, oh, it's a person down there, you know, doing all this stuff. No one was under there moving in it. There were no visible strings or anything like that. So people really took this to be like, oh, shit, like it's doing something. In the summer, the group took a break from meeting weekly. And some of the people claimed to have poltergeist-like activity at their own home then. So Dr. Owens and his wife, Iris, they really believed that they had proven that the mind is capable of creating an energy and using it to move objects, kind of to make the supernatural real. They believed that the group tapped into psychokinetic abilities, and that's how the table moved, that's how, you know, the lights dimmed, all the things. 
They knew it wasn't a ghost. They're not saying, oh, we created this spirit. No, they knew that they concocted this entity, this thing out of sheer will and belief, but it wasn't like he was something that could live on without them. It had to have those people who believed in him contacting him for him to make contact with other people. And honestly, they were like, this is maybe more so impressive than creating a like, quote unquote, real spirit. This is like quantum science, like expanding your fucking mind, like mind blowing shit. But of course, there were lots of critics about it. They said that it was all kind of confirmation bias. So if someone said, I heard something, and then another person would be like, oh my God, wait, I think I hear it too. Mm -hmm. You know, and then everyone's like, yeah, I do too. And they said like, that's not in a mean way. Literally, if someone said, oh, I heard Philip say my name. Well, then the next time they, the next person could be going, oh my God, is he going to say my name? Is he going to say my name? And really think they heard him say their name or something because they're trying to will it into existence. Right. And so they said, yeah, sure, the table moved. That could have been involuntary and subconscious movements that made that happen because the participants were determined. Like, if he moves this table, you know, this is going to show that we have done what we wanted to do. And then, like, it lifts up and it's like, oh, my gosh. And you don't know you're doing it completely in your subconscious. Now, I don't know how some of that works. I'm not saying that the table wasn't rigged because I don't know. But if it's like turned on its side, I don't understand how like you wouldn't see like pressure on someone's hand, like holding it down to the side a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I did hear like because they were saying with like a planchette, like people say, oh, my God, it moved by itself. But it is like involuntary movements. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they said the way to really like prove this is to have the person who's doing it or, you know, who you think has the ability to move it, blindfold them. And if it goes straight to like making words Mm -hmm. and stuff, then it's legit, right? Right. But if I'm doing it and I don't know how it's laid out and I'm just trying to remember what I, even if I don't know I'm moving it, even if I'm doing those subconscious things it's not going to go directly to the things because I don't know where it is. Right. And I was like, damn, I never thought about that. And then you have some people who say, okay, they didn't invent a spirit, but they did contact one. They think that like these people didn't have psychokinetic powers that they tapped into or anything like that. They think that they made contact with an unknown spirit And it might have had malintent, but it was just kind of using the Philip persona to contact them, to do whatever, to interact. Who knows what, like, it could have been wanting to do. But it's like, (laughs) these idiots think they're talking to some made-up fictional character. Okay. And let me play with them. That's kind of what I think. Well, you know, then some people have to say it was a demon that they contacted, blah, 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 blah. It's always a demon. Right. I've literally said, always got to throw a demon in there. Really, what the Philip experiment made me think about is how we all look at reality and the question of what exactly is it? Is reality what you make it? Because they weren't trying to disprove paranormal or prove it exists. Because they say, yeah, ghosts can exist. All right, sure. There's things that might be like residual energy or anything like that. Sure, sure, sure. They didn't say, oh, Philip is a spirit. and He's going to haunt this place for the rest of his time and all of that. No, they really were like, can we think about something so much and then tap into it and make this into a reality? And you can say, okay, well, they were all delusional. Like none of that really happened. But... If it was all happening to them, was that their reality? Well, as they say, your perception is your reality. I don't know if that's exactly what they say. But <laughs> well, and I always go back to like, God, I wish my Uncle Bob was still alive because he would have loved this shit because he talked about this shit when I was way too young to really understand what he was talking about. But he loved uh, drugs and he also was schizophrenic. So his ideas 
were very deep and very out there for like, you know, a middle schooler that I'm just like, tell me the scary stories again. And I really thought they were ghosts, but they were like delusions of his. But he would say like, well, you know, that's a cup because you're taught that's a cup. But what if something's right beside it that you don't perceive as being there because you were never taught that that was there? Right. Which is like the classic philosophy discussion. Right. Do you think blue is blue because it's actually blue or because you were taught it's blue? Is your blue my green or my green your blue? Right. With this experiment, did they tap into something and are we all more powerful than we know? Like, does everyone have an ability like this or was it like a shared group delusion? Can I go with D, all of the above? (laughs) I mean, Matilda told me that we are way more powerful than we know because we don't use enough of our brain. Oh, BTW, that's like a musical is coming to TV or something. Yeah, I saw something was like coming out about it. I was like, oh, good. But I just thought it was so interesting that these people who like, again, a chairperson of Mensa and, you know, all of these people, like a geneticist and mm-hmm. all of these, like, I don't know, it just gets into like science that my brain does not even comprehend. Right. So it really is like, is paranormal what we think of as paranormal or do we create a paranormal? I don't know. But it is like on all these poltergeist cases, it's something with trauma and usually unhealed trauma. And something that they said about this is because they tried to keep it lighthearted. They tried to keep it, you know, like they were serious about it. But again, they didn't try to like hold hands if we're going to... Blah, blah, blah. You know, like it, they would sing the songs. They would, you know, just, it was like a summer camp sing-along kind of thing. Right. But because they went in with positivity and stuff, they said like they didn't get a negative response. They didn't have negative like emotions tied to this. So they weren't getting like objects flying at their heads. Right. They weren't getting any of that, which like Doretta from the last one was, but it's like, again, She had that trauma from her childhood and everything. So it really could have tied in with that. And so it's like negative energy feeds negative energy. Right. And maybe that's when people say like they're more sensitive or whatever. Like maybe that really is why some people can say, well, I've lived there and nothing ever happened. And then another person's like, oh my gosh, no. But it's what you put out is going to be like what you get back. Well, I think that when you get a group of people together like that, you can literally make them do anything. I mean, you can convince a group of people to kill someone. Yeah. By putting this group there and planning this idea and making it fester and then believe that it's happening. Yeah, you're going to be able to get all that out of them. But I think it's almost like a hallucination. Like if you believe that something's happening, you can see it happening, even if it's not actually happening. Yeah. Could I say happening again? But you get it. But it's like like a delusion or a hallucination. Yeah. I always find it very interesting when there are like scientific experiments like this or even the conspiracy theories that we've covered from like government shit. And I'm like, wow, someone actually has an experiment for this or Mm -hmm. any of that. Like the Stanford prison experiment. Remember that Mm -hmm. one? That was wild. And it's just like, holy shit. No, that exists. Yeah, I don't know how they got that through their IRB. What's that? It's like an institutional review board oh. it's like for, <laughs> for research. Like you have to get it approved to be able to do it. And it's oh. like, hey, y'all got this approved. Mm. Who signed off on you doing this human experiment? Because <laughs> you got to go through all kinds of rigmarole to get a human experiment approved. Well, it was back in the day, so. Touche. But I listened to this podcast called Supernatural Circumstances and they were going into like the quantum science and all the yeah. things. So, you know, again, we're not that smart. Yeah. Way above my pay grade. But something that they said was like, so, because again, I don't think how things work. It's just things work, right? Yeah. You know? But one of the people were saying, eyes don't see anything. They are the like the vessel. Mm-hmm. For you your know. brain to interpret right. it. Yeah. And so they were like, if you're thinking about like this psychokinetic, whatever, energy, whatever, they're saying that people are looking at it in a research way that the brain could be a vessel. Like it doesn't know all of this stuff, but like it then is the vessel for your body to use it or whatever. But I don't know. I was just like, I was fascinated. 
Well, I don't think Philip's a real ghost that's like going to come and see us. No. However, I do believe that if they believed that he was, he was real for them. Yeah. Because of what they can kind of conjure up in their heads. Which I guess is, when you think about like an EVP, you hear what you're going to hear. Absolutely. Because you're watching those shows and you're like, I didn't hear that. Or if they have subtitles, then you hear what subtitles you read. Yes. There was one ghost show that did that. And like, so they would have it like, but then they play it back with the subtitles. And I like that because I could hear what I thought it was and then be like, oh shit, that is what I heard. Or that ain't what I heard. Right. And I thought that that made it a little bit more like. Authentic. Yeah. yeah. Legitimate. Not authentic. Legitimate. Which could totally be just a. Ploy. Yeah. Like a. A shtick, like, yeah, let them think that we're not putting this in their mind, but then we're also going to bring it back and double down that this is what they said. Right. But, I mean, it worked, because I am talking about that. I'm like, that's more legit than the other people, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, like she said, we don't understand Quantum Leap that's happening in her story. So, <laughs> y'all let us know what y'all think. Do you think that Philip's real? Do you think that they think Philip's real? Do you think that it's all a little hocus pocus? Do you think you can create a... Entity? Yeah. You're welcome for finishing your last six sentences. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, review. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. We truly, truly appreciate all y'all's love and support. We couldn't do this without y'all. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.